Hey everybody, welcome back to our series that we are doing on health determinism, which is a little bit of a play off of Dr. Robert Sapolsky's work. And I'm going to I'm going to first of all apologize if you happened to be here last week or watch last week's playback because uh it was just probably more suited to be an introduction to this topic and I pulled things together a little bit more succinctly that, than we did last week that will at least do that serve as an introduction. But without going uh, too deeply into it, uh, Sapolsky is a neuroscientist. Uh, he's a, a, an expert in just the field of behavior, specifically a, a neuroendocrinologist, primatologist. Uh, you know, he's in the, he was, he's retired now, but in the, the neurology departments at Stanford Medical School, neurosurgical, as well as just neuroscience. Uh, I even think biology, just biology department. He was, he was involved in a lot of things. Now he is retired and has written his, I think, maybe eighth or so book. <clears throat> but this is his second book after retirement. And these are by far his two best. The, the book Behave, I would totally recommend. This one on Determined, only if you're interested in the philosophy or the science of free will versus determinism. But it's a critically important juncture for us to understand what we can and can't change biologically when it comes to our own health. And uh, just kind of skipping through all of his awards here and accolades, I, I want I want to get to a, a point where we at least have some mutual understanding of, of why determinism in the sense of biology is so important to what we're going to talk about with intentional weight loss, uh, health management, health transformation. And I don't think it would be difficult for anybody here to to understand genetics in the realm of something like height or eye color. If if I said, how much did you have to do with your height or your hair color or something else? Obviously, nobody would say, oh, I had something to do with it. You, you had nothing to do with it. Uh, but when we get into something like, what about your personality? What about your ability to exert uh, self-discipline, then we want to go to the complete other end of the continuum and think that that's totally us. Because in the world of free will, both ends of that continuum become reward and punishment. Anything that I am responsible for in my life, if I do really, really good work, then I should be rewarded, right? That's what our social contracts say. Uh, but if I do something bad, something that we've collectively deemed inappropriate, then I should be punished or shunned in some way. But what if all of those things came under that same umbrella of genetics? So I'm going to skip by some of this. Like I said, a, a lot of this we went over last week and even in the series previous, which was on goal-oriented behavior. But free will, what is it? It's that sense that we have agency. And ironically, maybe not so ironically, it's it's the number one psychological need that we have is a sense of autonomy. I'm the boss of me. I make my own decisions. That is something we strive for. And many neuroscientists say we have the illusion of, but exactly how much is really there. And then you can get even into, uh, once you start testing through neuroscience means, you know, what we really do impact in our own decision-making. Uh, for example, if I look out the window really quick, I hear a noise and I look out the window and, oh my gosh, the sun is so bright that I just flinch and squint. Did I do that? 
No, my brain instantly did that. And then a fraction of a second later, I realized I did that. And then maybe even I can respond. Uh, for example, maybe, you know, I, I kind of blinked or turned away because of the bright sun. But then I remembered, oh, I wanted to see what was out there, what made that noise. And then I look back. You know, how much of that was determined by me and how much was just a reflex or response from my brain. Uh, so again, we went through a lot of this stuff in the last few weeks. I'm not going to redo it, but at the same time, I do want to go through some of these things just to bring us up to speed. So one has to conclude it is a global workspace brain phenomenon and everything we can and can't control affects our behavior. Every component of genetics and environmental factors acutely and chronically going back to infinity. So this is where a hardcore determinist like Sapolsky comes in. He would say, no matter how far you get back into what you think you can control yourself, there is still even some kind of an environmental factor that you never did control. Uh, I will give you another example. Uh, my oldest son has wanted to come in and work out a couple times a week early in the mornings. And I literally hate working out in the mornings. But I want this for him. And I value that connection time we can have. So a couple months ago, I said, yes, I will come work out with you in the morning. And every workout is just awful. Like, I just feel like death. It takes me so long to even just want to be there. And, and I just consigned myself that it would just be kind of a warm up. Like, it's not going to be a real workout for me. I'm, I'm doing it for him and, and I'll get my workouts in other times of the week. But last night I thought, man, I just want to, I got to get over this mindset. I want to go in and just have a good workout. If if I can physically get myself to that point where, where I'm used to it, then maybe it can be a great uh, productive workout. So last night I went to bed saying, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to have a freaking amazing workout. And I did. I It was a totally different workout today. So somebody who is in the camp of free will would say, see, Joe, you made that decision. You made that happen. Sapolsky would say, not so fast. You have a brain that has the capacity to make that decision. You have a brain that has the personality traits passed down through your mother and her father and all of the, the genetics I can see in those personality traits uh, that even wants to work out, that, that has any kind of ambition whatsoever. That's your brain type. You happen to live in a country, in a time, in a socioeconomic framework where you can literally do that. Other people cannot even wake up and go work out. They're working three jobs or doing something else, or they're living in a trash heap in Mexico City. It's it, it just, it's not me. There are so many confluent factors genetically and environmentally that I have no choice over. So that all impacts free will. And go back to even weight loss, the ability to get the kind of foods we want, the ability to, to have enough sleep, to, to live a stress-free enough life, to even be able to care about weight loss and better health. We did a series on the socioeconomic factors of, of health. Uh, but of course, to the opposite continuum of free will, opposite side of the continuum is determinism. So what are the things we can't control? How can we measure the responsibility of what we can't, which gets back into reward and punishment? Uh, one of the things to understand here, and Sapolsky concedes this, determinism doesn't equal exact predictability. 
It's obvious that the genetic environmental hand dealt without our free will creates boundaries more narrow than we would philosophically hope. But is it really true that anything is possible? Of course not. Yet our psychology and social contracts make that a better story. That's why we're so attracted to that. But one step back between those outcomes, the, the decisions we make that then we can evaluate and say, well, you know, where, where was my will in that is even the intent. And this is where you can go back to, um, you know, the people who disagree with, with a determinist. Um, but I think some of the earlier philosophers kind of had this more sorted out without knowing all of the science. Because remember, there is a, a philosopher mindset, a philosopher thinks about life, they, they view uh, it, it, what's happening and how people behave, they interpret things a certain way, and they come to some conclusions about how they think life is. A neuroscientist works with the mechanics. They work with the nuts and bolts, and they they do the research on that. And that's something we didn't have until the last few decades. So um, Hobbes, one of the Enlightenment philosophers uh, over in, in Europe, said, man, oops, typo there, man is as free as an unimpeded river. A river is in a channel. It has boundaries that the river's going that direction. He's free to move around in that river, but that river was genetically determined. Hume, uh, one of my favorite Enlightenment philosophers, discussed nature and common behavior as a foundation, but with the ability to act from that foundation. Uh, I would say Daniel Dennett, who actually is kind of an, uh, a funny, funny academic villain to Sapolsky. They kind of argue back and forth. Again, Sapolsky, neuroscientist, Daniel Dennett, philosopher. Those are just two different worlds. They are so, so dramatically different. Uh, but Dennett kind of leads the modern compatibilist, compatibilist compromise. And, and that that's this. That's what I'm describing here. And this is why I think it is two sides of the same coin but it's not the same issue. The, these philosophers and psychologist types arguing with neuroscientists are just looking at two different aspects semantically of the same thing. So if you remember, Viktor Frankl talked about the gap when we have this afferent information coming to our brain and we're going to have some kind of a response. Um, you know, he would say in terms of anxiety, depression, your ability to change your life, maybe make fewer impulsive decisions, that you have to widen that gap. Something comes in, the old adage, think before you speak, just stop, pause, extract yourself from that situation, think about it, and so forth. And so, voila, that shows a compatibilist or even a free will um, perspective. Like that's, that's the, you know, case closed, that means we all have unlimited free will because we can stop and think. But again, Sapolsky and determinists would come along and say, but what about this, 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 and this? All those things that came before that, your brain's ability to have that neurochemical response to even pause and, and so forth. Uh, so how much of that neuroplasticity can really impact long-term change? When we can pause and when we can work on things ourselves, um, I hope you see that there is a way to get some kind of, of free will shoehorned into this 
but it is within those boundaries and within those ranges of our genetics and the environmental conditions that we never chose. So that's just why there's such a semantic divide in this. I don't want you to think that biology dictates everything, but in a few minutes, a paper that we're going to go over today, you're going to see that it does dictate more than you might think. Um, so let me let me move along here. Uh, willpower, grit, resilience, all those things. We talked about this last week, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the newest part of the newest part of the brain evolutionarily. And that is where we get all of our impulse control. And multiple studies, classic studies now show the social psychology and the social ramifications of us genetically having the ability to exercise that part of our brain or even having the genetic framework for it to work well. So let me let me give you an example uh, back to maybe fitness that we all might understand. We know there are there are we would call them genetic freaks athletically. Uh, I worked my butt off for forty years, going on forty five years as a bodybuilder and powerlifter. I got all the way up to a five hundred pound deadlift and squat, which I thought was amazing. I have su a super small skeletal structure, twenty seven inch waist when I'm at my leanest. My little pelvis, wrists, ankles, everything, you know, my skeleton was not designed for that kind of weight. Other people my size can deadlift and squat a thousand pounds. I just don't have those genetics back to eye color, height, and so forth. Things like your brain structure are genetically determined. Some people just don't have the capacity uh, and so you have to understand even things like your ability to exert will is not necessarily the same as somebody else's. So when we get down to impulse control, hunger and so forth, you're, you're going to see that how we know this is expressed in our own lives and the people that we see around us, you're going to see some genetic proof here in a few minutes. It's going to blow you away when it comes down to hunger all the things we talk about with the hypothalamus and, and where hunger cues come from and how leptin, ghrelin, all those, those neurotransmitters and hormones really control uh, hunger, satiety, uh, even into the, the dopaminergic system and, and what we're really willing to give for a goal, uh, connections to the hippocampus and memory and formation and all the way back to the way our brains were wired as children. All of this comes down to who we are today, the kind of decisions we can make. And you have to put that back on the scale of how much am I really controlling and how much is it controlling me? So as, as I mentioned last week, uh, we know 75% of death row inmates have prefrontal cortex damage. And so again, we are, we are seeing the results of people who have compromised ability for impulse control, and we're holding them ultimately responsible even with the stigmatism of, of weight and weight gain being, you know, somebody who just doesn't have the willpower, they're lazy, blah, blah, blah. Really? I mean, can we say that? I know a lot of people even want to argue with, you know, calling obesity a disease uh, because of that. And we always point to that one person who, who kind of made it, right? Um, I mentioned even my family situation, my physical genetics, three of my four siblings are 100 pounds overweight or have been in their lives. Uh, socioeconomically very different from me. Uh, even my own children have sometimes looked at my family and said, gosh, dad, how did, you know, how, how did you come from that family? Like you are nothing like them in any way. 
And yet you go back to their actual personality traits, the way they make decisions and so forth. I am exactly like them. I just had different ways to elicit uh, my lack of impulse control and perhaps addictive personality traits. Uh, some of my family members are alcoholics, drug addicts, and so forth, uh, very poor decision makers. I'm kind of like that. I have just learned to make decisions to be addicted to better things. I still have those same traits. Uh, so even when you see something that you think is an outlier, you know, is it really? Don't just look at how things are expressed. I think I gave this example, uh, but I was listening to an NPR interview a few years ago, and there was a, a forensic criminologist. Somebody had like a PhD in forensic psychology, worked as a criminologist his whole life, really interested in studied serial killers. He was one of the top serial killer experts in our country. And when the technology caught up to be able to do uh, MRIs, fMRIs, and so forth, even autopsies of, of brain you know slices, uh, they found some incredible big data patterns. like they, they isolated down to exactly a, a brain type of a serial killer. And this guy decided, wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out my brain. I want to see how close I am to that or how far away, hopefully. And he found out he had the exact same brain type. So here are people who have the brain types to become serial killers. He was a serial killer expert, just one degree removed from making the bad decisions. He had the exact same interests and so forth. But, you know, in terms of compulsions, he, he made the decisions to do something else with that. That's another thing that even determinists like Sapolsky would say. Uh, we would love to take those people on uh, death row who have prefrontal cortex damage and say, okay, you know, yes, like a car with bad brakes, we need to take them off the road, but do we just execute them, put them away forever? Or is there something we can do to shape them back with whatever level of neuroplasticity we have to become something different? Um, let's see here. So we're going to kind of shift gears into some of the biology a little bit. And the uh, the, the low road, that's a, a reference to Daniel Goleman, Harvard psychologist who, who wrote the books, Emotional Intelligence and Social Intelligence. He used that example of a high road and low road into the brain with afferent information, which is stimulus our brain is receiving, and the efferent reactions, which is the central nervous system's ability to produce a behavior. So you have input and then you have a reaction or a decision or a behavior and these low road impulses that go right into our brainstem our autonomic nervous system those those elicit the fastest action potentials among synapses between you know neurons and uh you know the next the next neuron the dendrites the synaptic connection and so forth and and that's why with with functional mris we see that delay that Input came in, the brain already had a response, and then cognitively we become aware of it as like, okay, what's what's going on? Like, what, what do I need to do now? Our brain already took care of that. Uh, just like you don't have to think about your heart beating or if it needs to beat faster. 
if if you need to breathe harder because you're exercising and your your body your brain is detecting increases in carbon dioxide and so your diaphragm starts expanding and so forth you don't think about that that's a low road activity well we know the vast vast majority people like to throw terms out there like 90% 97 99 who knows but the vast majority of our lives are spent with that autonomic nervous system and we're just kind of the co-pilot sitting there with, or I should say, you know, like we're the pilot with the, the plane on autopilot. It's running, systems are fine, and we just kind of check in once in a while and see what's going on. Um, let me get ahead. I would really want to get to this, this paper today. I, I put too much introductory stuff in here, as always. Uh, so again, back to the philosophy. Um, you know, I, I'd already talked about reward and, and responsibility. Uh, but what we're really interested in is if determinism and biological genetics are so important and are such a part of this foundationally, why is there even a self-help industry? Why, why are we even having this session to try and figure something out? Ostensibly, you guys here, those listening on the playback, you know, want this information so you can use it. You want to be able to elicit some kind of change and make your lives better. Again, that's within the river, as Hobbes would say, or on the foundation that we were set upon, as Hume would say. Uh, so we can have some impact. That That is what neuroplasticity is all about. But what I think we have to truly understand, and this is, this is going to be my final point at the end of this, is not just for our own self-compassion, our ability to say, okay, I'm working, I'm working, I'm trying, but it's swimming upstream. It's it's grinding against my own genetics. Neuroplasticity takes a lot of time and effort and consistency. Um, and you just have to realize it's not a decision you make and then you have it. We also have to realize that with other people. We also have to realize that maybe somebody's making a decision or uh, choosing a behavior, choosing in air quotes, uh, that you don't understand. You think how horrible that was. I mean, can you really put that kind of value judgment? It's it's like the person who, you know, screams by you on the highway and your initial reaction, if you're me, is what a fucking idiot. You're going to kill somebody. And he may have a person dying in their front seat and he's driving to the hospital, you know, and here I'm making this moral judgment um, or go back to something just genetic capacity wise, you know, from brain cognition and so forth. But here's, here's where it comes down to us in this context, health determinism, body composition, health status, health status, even our, our aesthetic goals, how we want to look, you know, this is my world. This is what I do every day with clients. Uh, we, we have social values and responsibilities that, that we want to engage in, uh, we know that some of those things are uh, just imbued on, on us from other people. I, I had a client who was kind of a high-powered executive. He's a business leader, really struggles with his weight, succeeds in everything else in life. And when he and I and his wife were on a video chat and we were talking about both of their individual goals... He was really having a hard time, like trying to put this into words because it seems kind of uh, not vague, but vain. And I said, when you walk into a room and you're in your power suit and you're trying to command respect in a boardroom or a meeting like that, 
as soon as somebody sees you're 80 pounds overweight, you feel like they think you're lazy and have no control. He said, yes, that's it. That's it. That's exactly why I want to be leaner and healthier. Social values, responsibility, self-worth, all those judgments are tied together because we are social beings. But if we cannot cross that bridge of biology, if we don't realize that impulse control at that prefrontal cortex level, uh, cortex level, and what I think has to become almost like 12-step programs, once you're creating some change, there has to be a, a pattern of habit formation where you keep yourself there. Because again, if you are not genetically gifted at something, even at these cognitive levels we're describing, you may never be, quote, gifted in it. It may always be a struggle, but that's okay. As you become aware of that and you create habits to change that and control that, that's the best we can do. I'm, as I said last week, I'm never going to beat uh, an NBA player in a game of basketball. I just won't. That's not my genetic hand I was dealt. But if if athletics was my thing, you know, how far can I go in that? So so think about some of those uh, dichotomies, as I mentioned here, and let's let's get into what we can have impact on this. You, you might recognize this slide. I used it a few series ago, just showing some of the things that we've tackled. If you go back into our three year library of these flexible dieting institute research review, reviews, Besides all the biological, physiological, weight loss type things we have done, even strength training, muscle physiology, things like that, we've spent a lot of time talking about high-level conceptual psychological uh, topics, personality traits, the placebo effect. We did a long series, five or six, on just dopamine and what that means for brain function. Self-efficacy, it, it, you, know, you see there in that second column near the bottom, is exactly what we're talking about. Self-efficacy as a definition is my belief that I can control my outcome. Even in the context of determinism, we need a large degree of, of self-efficacy. If we don't have that, we won't even try, and then we won't get anywhere. So I, I hope you're seeing what I think you could define as a compatibilist view of determinism and free will is that regardless how far, how many levels we go down into the things we could not control, 4.8 billion years worth, there are still things that we ultimately do have control over. If I if I ever had the opportunity to interview Robert Sapolsky, and I've actually talked to his agents about that possibility, um, I would ask him this one thing and it would be, I think he's leaving the element of time, which is one of my previous slides out of this. When you look at the amount of neurons we have in our brain, which are trillions, um, and you look at all those different connection types and patterns in the fact that as soon as a, a bit of input comes into my brain. Again, let's go back to that analogy or that illustration of me looking out and I, I, I hear noise. I look out my window, the sun hits my eyes and I shirk back from the sun. You know, the, the actual light waves of the sun hit my retina 
And now rods and cones and the optic nerve and all these things are firing and it's going into all these different cascading portions of my brain to elicit even a uh, a cerebellum motor cortex level movement. I Maybe I move my hands up to like block the sun, I'm squinting. All of that happens with, with just hundreds of thousands of synapses firing at once without me even knowing about it. Going back to the Victor, Victor Frankl gap theory, um, what I think somebody like Sapolsky doesn't address, maybe he's aware and I'm just not, I'm not considering his, his opinion here. Um, you do have the ability at some point to perhaps get better at those stoppage points. Um, for example, uh, in, in martial arts, you know, you're you're taught to have different reactions. <clears throat> if somebody if somebody came up to Kevin and they just kind of grabbed him on the shoulder, you know, he might just say, "Oh, hey, like what's going on?" and look behind him. <clears throat> I would probably reach around and have that person on their back in half a second because my reaction has been changed because of, you know, being in martial arts since I was a teenager. And so again, that's that is a learned behavior. <clears throat> So Sapolsky, free or determinism, <clears throat> our abilities to have those different reactions and blah, 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 determinism, determinism all the way down for sure, but we can still modify that. So again, I, I want you to understand that that's, that that still gives us room to change. So as I said, self-efficacy, uh, you know you can change, you know you can have those, those different effects on your own behavior. Uh, we know that free will exists within these kinds of boundaries we discussed, even if we concede to determinism that those frameworks are still set up without our knowledge or perhaps even our will. Uh, but change is difficult. It takes time and deep focus, as I said. Uh, even things like brain health, sleep, stress, exercise, that's going to even impact how we uh, change day to day, You know how we perform day to day. Uh, we also know from a lot of research that the values guide and change our behavior. So as we work to adapt new behaviors, uh, we have to at least tie them somehow to values or it just won't happen. So as we always talk about, values have to kind of be the guiding force behind change. Um, but it's still just never going to be equitable. It's not the same for me or you versus the next person and the next person. So back to patience and compassion. So here, here's where I think one of the biggest points is that that uh, example that a lot of people talk about in terms of just little degrees of separation. If I can only impact this one thing and I say, OK, that's not much, but if I can impact it today, you know, maybe in terms of weight loss and habit and so forth, I, I get what I think is a real win. I, I was very consistent, precise on my diet. I've got the metabolic switch, metabolic positioning working for me, at least for that day. I'm heading the right direction. Well, maybe that's a couple hundred calories in the, in the scope of 200,000 stored calories in the form of body fat I'm trying to remove from my body. But then I get another good day and another good day. And that turns into 350 out of 365 good days. Because remember, we're not after perfection. Um well, where am I at in five years? All of a sudden, that one degree of separation, you, you, you don't even see that baseline that you were at, that you could have genetically stayed at. You made a tiny change 
And then that started compounding and affecting other changes and so forth. So that's why all the free will people, the psychologists, the philosophers hate neuroscientists like Sapolsky who make dogmatic claims about determinism. Because it's just, again, it's semantics. It's just two different things. So an understanding of constraining physiology helps us identify what we can and can't change, what may be more difficult. Uh, and I think the way forward into meaningful progress is that kind of sober perspective, the patience I keep describing, and a useful balance of goal-oriented pursuits, and yet that relaxed philosophical absurdism, realizing like, hey, it's okay. If I, if I don't get it today, what did it really matter? Uh as I say here, you know, dream, but don't forget to sleep, to relax and take care of the things you have to work, but don't forget to play. Uh, we, I see so many people in my field of work who are either on or off. Every day is a win or a loss. I'm either succeeding or failing. And it's that kind of black and white dichotomy that really hurts the long-term pursuit. And I think it blocks positive neuroplasticity. So I finally have one example here uh, from directly from Dr. Sapolsky's book, Determined, just to really show you again, because we're going to turn into this paper now that we're going to review, you know, how biological this really is. So this is his just little semi-artistic rendering of two neurons with a synapse. And A is a neuron with that little plus sign that had an excitatory response, an action potential that, that excited neuron B. So then neuron B has a neurochemical electrical reaction and whatever, whatever dendrites are then connected to other neurons, it's going to pass it down. So my forever used domino example. <clears throat> so that's how it works in our brain. <clears throat> Here's where determinism will, will all of a sudden stump a philosopher. Well, let's say A, neuron A, is exciting neurons B and C, but C has the ability to inhibit neuron A. So now A is having these, these impulses, these effects on a couple of neurons, but one of those neurons has the ability to then control A. And you can get into infinite types of neuronal connections here, uh, or C has the ability to negatively incite B and so forth. And I'm, I'm going to get to the punchline here in a minute. But then you see something like this, where A is, is exciting B, C, D, E, F, but then D can come in and excite neuron C, which then inhibits A and E. These are all exact representations. This one is actually of pain. Uh, and, and this is a really good example, really brilliant by Sapolsky. So different sensations like pressure, you grab my arm, I feel that you can squeeze so hard, I may, may feel pain. You can cut me and I feel pain. You can put ice or heat on me and I feel a different kind of pain. All kinds of different receptors for different types of sensations or pain go to our brain through different pathways. And those nerve connections are actually different size. The myelin sheaths are faster or slower. And so certain kinds of pain get to the brain faster. There's the, the pain gateway theory, which means, for example, when you hit your thumb with a hammer and you have this throbbing pain, what's the first thing you do? You grab your, pain, your, your thumb and you squeeze it. And guess what happens? You stop feeling that pain because now your brain is paying attention to the acute sensation of the pressure you're applying. So that nerve signal is getting 
to your brain faster than the actual throbbing pain. We do this with things like electrical stimulation. You see people with TENS unit. Um, so you have back pain, you have a muscle spasm or, or even a, a you know neuralgic type pain. And yet you put this sensation of this electrical, you know, pinging on your skin and all of a sudden your brain pays attention to that and not the real pain underneath. That's an example of everything I just showed, but here's, here's the punchline. You don't control any of that. Your body does. You have no say in these types of action potentials. When I look in, into the sun and I have all these different reactions and so forth, it's just there. Why can't we we understand or get other people to understand that even our thoughts and behaviors and reactions in other ways, like to somebody speeding by me on the highway or my inability seemingly to not eat a chocolate chip cookie when it's in front of me, even though I say I don't want to eat that cookie, I'm on a diet. Why can't I get that straight? Because these kind of biochemical electrical reactions are happening in our bodies in biology is driving that much stronger, much faster than we can cognitively keep up with. We can learn to do that and we can learn to create some behaviors that may guard us against that. I can keep chocolate chip cookies out of my house. That was a free will decision to construct my environment differently. But again, these things take time and skill and effort and neuroplasticity. So real quick, because again, that's kind of the discussion I wanted to have last week, uh, but I, I put it down in a better PowerPoint this week. Uh, now I wanted to start a discussion to finish this series, and we'll take a break for Thanksgiving. But the genetics of obesity, this is in, in Nature, the journal, one of the top science journals in the world. Uh, it's, it's kind of a review or position paper. It's actually titled in their review section. Um, I like that this was pretty current, 2021. Uh, so let's let's dive in because I want you to really see some cool things here when it comes to just weight loss, diet, willpower, etc. So we know through genome-wide association studies, which are more um, um, epidemiological, you know, we're, we're just creating, we're getting databases of information and we're trying to look for patterns and so forth. It's not a mechanistic type study, but since 1994, when we really started getting uh, used to having the human genome known to us and accessible for researchers, uh, that's when the very first study was done or discovery of obesity related genetics down to mechanistic levels like leptin in different forms of mutations. Uh, let, let me go back real quick, just, just talking about these kinds of genetics. You have to understand how diverse we all are. And, and COVID gives us a great example. Think how many generations of the COVID-19 you know, uh, virus there are since 2020 or the end of 2019. The one that's currently circulating now doesn't even respond to you know vaccines or immunity from 2019, 2020, because it's evolving constantly, just like our eyesight. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but through genetic mutations, uh, we have an optic nerve that runs right through our visual field. So we have a large portion of our visual field that we actually don't even technically see. 
our brain has to make it up just so we don't see a dark spot, two dark spots in front of us. Because somewhere along the line in our human race, our species, we had this genetic mutation that our eyes developed that way. And those were the people who survived for probably a myriad of other reasons. And now we're stuck with that. Uh, our vision is inverted. You know, we see things upside down and our brain has to flip it right side up. That's why, you know, species like eagles and so forth have a million times better vision than us uh, because they they didn't have those kind of negative mutations. So when you look at mutations of things like hunger cueing and, and the, all of the systems we're going to talk about in terms of, of diet and, and nutrition, I want you to consider that some of the things we're going to talk about when it comes to obesity, the fact that 99% of all species that ever lived have gone extinct, and a lot of that because of scarcity, running out of food and starvation, maybe the ability to harvest more energy and store it from our food, not metabolize it as quickly, maybe that's not a genetic mutation. Maybe that's a genetic benefit. Uh, you know, anything is possible in our evolutionary history like that. But I want you to see this diversity that we're just now in the last 30 years starting to get a picture of. So monogenetic versus polygenetic obesity, uh, two classifications that when you look at this as a genetic disease, researchers have discovered. Monogenetic obesity is really seen in kids. So you see a kid who's three, four, five years old, and they're already like painfully obese. You can probably uh, discern that there are some chromosomal deletions, or as one study showed, a single gene effect is, is responsible for about half of people who have monogenic obesity, and it is severe. Like that's what's marked by that. Not everybody has the ability to even become 600 pounds or 1,000 pounds or 200 pounds as a 12-year-old child. That is rare, and that is a genetic disorder. Uh, polygenetic obesity is more common, and that's, that's just hundreds of small effect polymorphisms, uh, all the different things we can channel. And, and this is one of the things that I mentioned on my post about this. Um, Although often considered to be two distinct forms, gene discovery studies of monogenic and polygenic obesity have converged on what seems to be broadly similar underlying biology, specifically the central nervous system and neuronal pathways that control the hedonic, hedonism, hunger, aspects of food intake have emerged as the major drivers of body weight for both monogenic and polygenic or genetic obesity. Furthermore, early evidence shows that the expression of mutations causing monogenic obesity may, at least in part, be influenced by individuals' polygenetic polygenic, I'm sorry, susceptibility to obesity. So this is another great picture of free will versus determinism. Uh, and that's going to cycle in, in a couple more times before we're done. But I want you to see again, something that we've talked about in that back to the hypothalamus, uh, leptin, which is the biggest driver so far that they are seeing, uh, that is primarily driven by hunger. It's not that we metabolically have that much diversity. If you remember, we talked about that a couple series ago and some new studies looking at the differences of different cultures and uh, you know civilizations and the fact that you know there is a lot of homeostatic control to energy balance, but hunger is the thing that seems to be the most dominant driver of these, these obesity disease states. 
meaning that those polymorphisms drive it through hunger. It's not that I eat a Twinkie and you eat a Twinkie and you gain 50 pounds and I don't. It's that you eat 50 Twinkies and I don't. Like it's it's that kind of hunger-driven uh, trait. So between these two types of, of obesity, um, we, we kind of laid this out narratively, but look at the very bottom. Uh, in the polygenic, environment is a key determinant. In the monogenic, there just is that genetic confluence, probably, like I said, in about half of cases as a single gene mutation, where you're just going to do that. You just are. We actually exert some free will over here on the polygenic size. So of all of the people, you're going to see this in a slide coming up, who have this, uh, you know, more of the polygenic uh, issues, you put them in an environment where they decide to diet a little bit, they care about their health, they they have the impetus to become more physically active, and about 30 to 40% of them can control or reduce their obesity. So they have those genetic traits, and yet they can exert some will on that. Um I'm not going to go through all of this, but as I said, 1994 is when leptin was first cloned. And now we've had just, you know, tons and tons. Look, look at look at some of the, the you know, different components of research. It, they're not all listed here, but in this article, you could look it up. Uh, it, it's just compounding amazingly. Um, in this monogenic obesity, that, that's the rare kind, that's very, very harsh. Mutations in leptin account for 30% of severe obesity. So back to leptin, by the way. Uh, if you don't know, is a hormone secreted by our body fat cells, and it's to promote the feeling of satiety. And so as we gain body fat or body fat cells are in an anabolic state, they're, they're, they're storing energy. We've had a big meal and our body fat cells are absorbing fatty acids. Then leptin is created and that, that travels up the central nervous system to the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus shuts off hunger. Like, wow, we're full. We're not hungry. Stop eating. Some people don't feel that. Some people never feel that. They just constantly feel more hunger than everybody else. Uh, in these polygenic obesity studies, more than 80 early studies identified greater than 300 chromosomal loci obesity links. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to show you a little slide just educationally about genetics and alleles and so forth in a second for those who, who don't understand. Um, but then by 2007, more than 1,100 independent loci were, were discovered a recent um, uh, genomic or genome-wide association study of 800,000 people showed that the loci significant variations of body mass index was 6%, meaning that 94% of these traits could be followed as an exact pattern. If you have this, this, and this, you're going to have this obesity trait. If you have this, you have this. And so they're down to only 6% having some variants that they can't really attribute to a specific predictable pattern of obesity, which to me from 1994, zero studies to now having more than 4 million people, if you're already that far ahead, I'm, I'm going to guess either 6% is okay, like 94% is pretty inclusive, uh, you know, 95% is the confidence interval we're typically looking for anyway. Um, or it's just, we're just not there yet. You know, we will find those. But here, let me see if I put this. Okay, I did. 
Uh, for those of you who don't understand that the, some of those terms, you have a chromosome, so on the left there, and the locus or multiple are called loci. Those are the positions on the chromosome where a certain allele is located. So the allele for your hair color, we can say there it is. If you've ever seen like maybe on crime dramas, like they show like these little DNA tests and there's little like hash marks, like little strips and little hash marks. They're, they're showing physical representations of things like this. So you have these chromosomes. And I remember we did a research review that showed for things like obesity or, or even let, let's just go to hair color. This is a little bit uh, untrue in that like there's not one single spot on a chromosome for hair color. There may be 20 because there are copies. There are intentional um, duplications. Evolutionarily, that's very important. So that's why they're looking at so far 1100 loci, 1100 places on these chromosomes that we can predictively say, if you have this mutation versus this mutation, then you're going to have more struggle with obesity versus not. Like that's how deterministic this is becoming the deeper we can look into the science of this. So um, as obesity is a complex multifactorial condition, some um, genome-wide association studies have integrated demographic factors such as sex and age and environmental factors such as physical activity, diet, or smoking into their analyses. Despite sample sizes of more than 200,000 individuals, these genome-wide uh, gene-by-environment interaction analyses remain challenging. And so far, only 12 loci have been identified, the effects of which on obesity are attenuated or exacerbated by non-genetic factors. Nevertheless, the gene times environment, which is what we would say you control, interaction um, is has been robustly replicated, specifically increasing physical activity or a healthy diet can attenuate the effect. This FTO locus is just one of the... Um, you know, made main patterns of obesity, you can reduce it, as I said, by 30 or 40%. So even that, this is another nod to Sapolsky and determinism in that you have very specific loci, you know, specific places on human chromosomes, where if it's this one versus that one, you may have the genetic capacity to allow for physical activity or a healthy diet to attenuate your obesity. So even your ability to have that kind of impact is at least somewhat at this point genetically determined. Um, so as a staunch determinist like Sapolsky, you would ask, I don't want to talk about that. We, we talked about this so much. I'm going to skip ahead here. Um, here. Here's my main point to this whole talk today. Determinism is not 100% predictive, just as free will isn't 100% free. That single intersecting point of genetics and the opportunity for change is still different for every person. We have choices where we have choices, and where we have choices is even determined, as that previous slide just said directly from those researchers. Hopefully that makes sense to you. So despite the difficulties in validating causative mutations and variants, genetic studies into both rare and common obesity over the past two decades have revealed two surprisingly cogent overarching biological messages. First, 
The leptin melanocortin pathway is a key appetite control circuit. And second, genes that are either enriched or exclusively expressed within the brain and central nervous system have a central role in obesity. So that was a conclusion to this entire paper. And I'm not going to go through this. Just, just shows that that leptin pathway is the, the most important. Uh, other strong neuronal circuits besides the leptin melanocortin pathway are linked to obesity, but it currently appears that hunger-driven considerations are the strongest, as we would expect evolutionary when it comes to polygenic obesity. Specific therapeutics, and there are already some, there are at least two at the time of this paper on the market, uh, are, are going to be derived based on the very, very specific genome testing that we will be able to pursue in the future. It's not commercially available now. Uh, but this, this comes directly, as I quote it here, from their conclusions. What we should be doing in the meantime, lessen the feelings of guilt and shame for the patient, the person struggling with obesity, and alleviate the social stigmas and discrimination. Because we should be able to say of ourselves and others that this is just not 100% free will. You you have all of those constraints we discussed, and it's just not the same for everybody. So uh, that did take a little longer than I wanted, but uh, I guess maybe it's it's a good thing that we have Jen and Kevin here to, uh, to give us some wrap-up statements. Our education director and medical director. What do you guys think? Come on in, Dr. Souders. Oh, Kevin's coming in first. I'm just, I'm still trying to absorb it. I'm still thinking. Yeah, it's, uh, this is, this is a lot of stuff. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, one thing that I'll toss out there because I think it's valid when we're looking at this um, determinism versus our ability to modify say that determinism if if we're going to say if we're going to synonym synonymously say determinism is genetics um which it isn't but that's as an oversimplification um one of the interesting things too is how epigenetics happens so that there's there's definitely a lot of of evidence that the the genetics may not necessarily change directly, but they are, but things are either suppressed or enhanced by environmental exposure and that that can be passed on through generations. So there, there, I know there have been studies, I think in India, for instance, for infants who are born of mothers who were in um, severe, you know, starvation. And those, those mother's genes were from the environmental exposure turned on to really calorically absorb everything because there was no way of knowing when the next meal was coming, if or when. And so it enhanced adiposity and storage for whatever kind of, of intake was available. So those infants then inherited that because their genes were turned on when they were within the womb. And so then you have a generation who is born with a sort of genetic 
um, propensity for obesity. Um, again, not, not their fault. So this is where shame and um, free will and things um, are negative impacts for people. Um, but that, you know, just for individuals learning that fact provides a cognitive framework for them to understand what their bodies are doing and how they're working, and then may allow them to adapt their behaviors to mitigate the negative effects of that. So that was just kind of one of the things that popped up for me um, that, you know, it's, it, it, it really can be a very complicated topic and, and we can start to look at, you know, generational determinism, so to speak. Um, but, but if gene expression is affected by environment, then it would seem that we still have interplay of the environment. And as we interact with our environment, uh, the possibility of potentially altering the expression of those genes over time, you know, that 1% change may, um, may, may change sort of the epigenetic phenomena. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think it's incredibly fascinating and it's so much in its infancy of understanding. Yeah. I, I think that really is the heart of the matter. Uh, even if we drop the, the phrase epigenetics, um, it's, it's, it is environmental. Your last statement there, Jen, like, like even Sapolsky would say, you know, let's take all these people who would normally commit crimes and given a different environment, like, they would still have those genetics and those epigenetic potentials, but there's not expressed a certain way. So, you know, the example going back to my family and me uh, versus how I now express my genetics, even just, you know, 54 years past birth, because since I left home at 17, you know, my environment has cumulatively been different. And, and he makes the, the statements in his introduction, he talks about just levels all the way down, like no matter where you can say there's free will, there's another level right under that that was determined. Um, it's, you know, what, what's, the, what's the number one driving factor of crime? It's employment. So you give people something to do, a place to feel positive and somewhere to hope and dream and build a life, and they express their behavioral genetics a certain way. You take that away from a mountain of people in a society, and guess what? Those personality traits they have are going to be expressed differently. So that's kind of a behavioral example of epigenetics, but biochemically, very similarly to what you're saying, in utero or this this mother's body is changed and so then her offspring one generation later are also changed again you know a biochemical example of the same thing but th that's why i keep coming back to the fact that i want people to understand how biological this is and how much we can't control so then we have better expectations of exactly what we can control and and the best way to do that because that's that's where we are like that's the impact we need to make Kevin, as you said, you were kind of processing this more. Um, what, what, what do you mean by that? More on the application part? 
or the biology of much it? Now I would say what you just said really pretty much summed it up for me in terms of its you know clinical application of, of how to coach clients. And it just doesn't just it doesn't just stay put in you know clinical work. This also goes to relationships and just how we treat people as well in terms of understanding and just don't be hasty with judgments and or assume what's going on. Just you know, wh however they come to a decision, of course, it's right or wrong. That's another topic. But just whoever they come to as a conclusion and how we may judge that, it's not our place to necessarily do that. Again, ignoring you know punishment and all that uh, direction at the moment, but just the idea of you know, just to show empathy, compassion, understanding, and genuineness of what's going on you know to me that's just it, that's the relevancy i have but i still just have an I don't, it's not a difficult time of understanding the concept it's just a, a whole deeper level that i never imagined when it comes to this that it's incredible how convoluted and complex it is even though it's so very simple just like everything else that's pretty much what we teach but it's I'm just perplexed by it as a concept that's incredible. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And that's why I love doing these things because it forces me into bigger problems to try to wrap my brain around. But, uh, you know, what you just said there reminds me of something I said last week, which was this is why sometimes the best thing we can do is outsource some of our cognitive inabilities, so that's why even this week I mentioned 12-step programs and accountability and coaching and so forth, because if I'm just not good at something, if I am an impulsive decision maker, then maybe I need to learn as a first stopgap, if I'm about to make a decision that I know is impulsive, maybe I call my wife, who's totally the opposite, you know, and maybe I, maybe I help, you know, myself by involving other people. Remember, interpersonal neurobiology is the field of study by, you know, founded by Dr. Daniel uh, uh, Siegel, is it Siegel? Um, and, and that is that we, we don't live alone. Like when I'm, when I'm sitting here speaking with you two, I'm a different person than when I'm by myself. And we change each other permanently, even in an instant like this. So for these things we may struggle with or deficits we may have even biologically, Besides the neuroplasticity and the work to try to change ourselves, maybe having the realization that this is why I need to be with the right people. You know, as they say, we we become who we hang out with. We are who our friends are. And so in these areas that mean so much to us, and we're trying to create better positive change, that's a layer we need to consider, you know, just surrounding ourselves by the right people who can help us permanently. And when we interact with people, one of the little mantras I've discovered to be helpful not that long ago, actually, I started employing it. Um, when you meet individuals who you might just have a hard time getting along with, um, or you might find them difficult, or you sort of just like don't like them. or um, and, and it is worth remembering, if I were him or her, and I had their life and was raised exactly the way they were, I would be exactly who he or she is myself right now today. And so it's it's one of those things, the, the frontal pause, um, where 
it can allow us to see someone um, rather than just simply reflexively judging them. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you being here. Our education director, Dr. Kevin Brunacini, Dr. Jen Souders, our medical director. Amy had to jump off. I know a lot of people watch this on the playback, but uh, we'll see you guys here after Thanksgiving. I'll make some announcements. Those of you who are clients of ours, we will be here Monday and our topic will be how to make it through Thanksgiving. So see you guys Monday who can make it and uh, you guys on the research review after Thanksgiving.